Start jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. You should be able to hear the magnetic resonance. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I am your other host, Susan Fox. And our guest this evening is Daniel Price, the author of the Silver series, and book two has just come out. There is about to. Uh, is it? Is it? Not out already? Is, no, is honey, already? we got it early. Got an, an Thank goodness coffee. we got it early because if I was beating down doors wondering what happens next. And of course, like any second in the series, now I still want to know what happens next. And the book is called The Song of the Orphans, and it's the Silver series, book two. Book one was Flight of the Silvers. And it's about Joe and Joe and Bob Silver, who no, no, that's silly. That's not it at all. So, Almost. Some people thought that it was a, uh, a Jewish family saga. It could be. It could be. We don't know anybody's religion in this, with the it, you know, except was, for the it, exception of the one hyper Catholic. Uh, was gal. the husband named Phil? No, Phil Silvers. No. Okay. No. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. You're all a different story. Yeah, that's uh, that's a completely yes different different timeline entirely. Yes. So the um, so tell us tell us about the so what what is the premise of the silvers well in your words the premise of the series the way I describe it well usually my synopsis takes about four hours so I've learned how to tone it down and uh, simplify it for the sake of my audience but the simplest explanation I can give you is the story is about two sisters and four strangers who are saved from apocalypse by mysterious forces and are brought to an alternate Earth that is both familiar and different. And on this planet, history took a sharp right turn in 1912 after a huge cataclysm took out half of New York. And as a result, it introduced a new form of temporal energy, which led to a new form of technology. And now in modern day in this world, uh, temporal manipulation is just a daily part of life for everyone. So it is a vastly, as you can imagine, just a vastly different world than uh, what we might be used to. The lack of rock and roll is what I found disturbing. Yes. The, <laughs> for all advanced technologies, the culture is at least 50 years behind ours, and it is not – the country has been isolationist since 1912, and it is, has been creatively starved more or less. So it's the same vanilla stuff over and over again. Nobody takes chances. The movies, the TV shows, the music, they're just terrible. 
Is that just a dash of, of commentary on our current situation? Well, you know, I started writing this in 2009, just really before the whole border wall talk and everything else took off. So it was <laughs> a, a little bit of commentary, but it was just nowhere near as relevant as it is right now. Yikes. That is the role of science fiction, though, to be precognitive of, of uh, potential, uh, potential events. Yeah, but usually we don't mind being wrong. Right. I would have loved to have been wrong in this situation. And I don't think there's any kind of any sci-fi writer who could have fully predicted the stuff that's going on right now. Oh, yes. I, I, <laughs> I don't think I even writers there. can get away with it. It's just too unbelievable. Well, the, 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 yeah, truth is stranger than fiction because fiction, exactly. has to, because fiction has to make sense. That's the problem. Exactly. That's what my father yes. always taught me. But um, the the problem here isn't anybody in the government, but strange forces from the future and, and not even necessarily our own future. Right. The uh, The mysterious figures are a family. It's a, a mother, a father, and their son who have traveled back from an alternate future for mysterious purposes, and they have a plan for these people, uh, our main characters. They gave each one a silver bracelet, which is why they're called the Silvers, mm -hmm. and that um, helped transport them from one world to another. And now the Silvers don't know what they're here for, they don't know why, and these, this family, the Peltiers, they're not telling so you don't learn until the end of Song of the Orphans, or near the end, what they really want with the main characters. Wow. <laughs> I don't know how much to say or ask without spoilers. It's I know, it's tough. There's this great, if, if you haven't come up to speed, though, or want to review before reading the second book, there's this great, snarky, poorly, <laughs> with all the high art skills of the webcomic XKCD.com. <laughs> maybe, sli maybe slightly lower. Maybe slightly lower. It's, it's slightly yeah, lower. <laughs> but it's a great explanation. I mean, it, Thank uh, you. it, it, it brought me up to speed quickly so that I could start reading Song, think, of, Song of the Orphans and have it make some kind of sense. I, think, I, was a really like, good I thing struggled that for a long time. Originally, the publisher wanted me to include a mini synopsis in the book itself before Song of the Orphans, and I spent a week trying to do it, and there was just no good way to keep it within a page. Yeah. And yeah. I just finally gave up and said, you know what, let's just refer people to my website. And once I started writing it, I'm like, okay, there's no way – I'm so familiar, like painfully familiar with the story by now. There was no way I could make it sound good unless I took a somewhat tongue-in-cheek tone and not took myself too seriously. So I came up with a kind of like breezy, conversational synopsis of everything that happened in the first book, more or less. And as soon as I did the first couple of paragraphs, I'm like, you know what? This still needs something. And bizarrely, the answer was <laughs> stick figures. I think the next one should be like superhero action figures. So the speedsters would all be like the Flash with different wigs. Oh, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> that, that or Lego. Le Ooh, yeah, Lego. Good. Yeah. Oh, you can give me ideas here. Glad to be of service. <laughs> I liked. I liked the. Uh, I like the the tone and the voice of the the prequel. You know, the little stick figure. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think you know, I want to make it as easy as possible it, for people that, to catch up. There are some mm -hmm. people who bought this book, Flight of the Silvers, way back in February 2014, or even earlier, got an advanced copy. So it's been at least two and a half years for them. 
and they not only will they not remember the characters, but they don't know all the little alt world details like what's Tempest, what's Loomis, what's Eris, you know. So mm-hmm. I also included like a glossary and a oh, full guide of characters. goodness for that because I was trying to remember what was what and how and what. Right. The, the Tempest. Um, Temporis. Temporis? Temporis is the overall source of temporal energy that has changed this world. I see. And there are different, there are different forms of sub-energy. Tempest is something different. That is oh, essentially what they call solidified time. Mm-hmm. It's technically that. So you, it's a malleable white force that is indestructible. It is almost weightless and can be used for anything from force fields to protective armor to even just like uh, uh, handy multi-tools. Um, can be used for anything, and that's one of the biggest changes in this world. Or household pets, these, like white barriers everywhere. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, I remember reading, you know, in, in the introductory pages about uh, um, you know some of the structures in the city are made of the stuff. Right. Uh, um, one one character is on crutches, and the the crutches are made of tempest. And yep. they and they only hold their structure so long as she's concentrating, and if yes. she's, if she loses she, her concentration, they start getting wibbly and wobbly. Right, she's different. This character Amanda, she can she's one of the few people on Earth who can make tempest naturally, and it's only as strong as her state of mind. So when she is frazzled, she is. It's, it's basically it works just like language. You know, when we get upset, we're not as eloquent as we usually are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> She can. This is what she can. Unfortunately, break walls when she gets really angry and not mean to. Mm-hmm. So that is all the complication. But you know, I created some also with the technology. At least there's also Eris, which is a form of Tempest that can be molecularly compelled to move in a different direction, even up. Which is how you have all these flying buildings, flying cars, flying everything. Uh, there's a huge anti-gravity craze in the world. Even things that don't need to be anti-gravity or anti-gravity just because they can. Oh, like, well, like tabletops in a bar. Right, exactly. Yeah, or whole like, bars. Or you know we bars, would. Yeah. We would totally I'm do sorry? that. We would totally do that because we can. We absolutely would. And, uh, I think it would take some getting used to it first. I think for, like the first flying restaurant would be a lot of skittish customers. Like, uh, be sure this thing's gonna stay up, but, it would get easier with time, and then once everyone got used to it, everybody would want to do it. So there are flying restaurants; they're shaped like saucers over every city. And at one point, one of the characters notes that if there was ever an alien invasion, nobody would notice because there are already so many saucers in the air. <laughs> That's true. That's true. There, there would be. So um, not everybody, not all of the recipients of the bracelets necessarily trust one another, and no. for good reasons. With good reasons, yes, there are. It was a diverse group that was selected, and they weren't exactly chosen for their um, necessarily for their moral strengths or even their emotional strengths. I mean, at the start of Flight of the Silvers, these are all level one characters. You know, they lost their world, they lost their families, they are completely shaken, and they are prone to arguing with each other. And some of them, like one of the villains, Evan Rander, is a complete psychopath. Right. Well, he came by his psychopathy. Uh, the, honestly, he's got to have gone back guano crazy at this point after. Yes. However many. He, he he lives through the same five years or so and then starts over. 
he has the power to rewind his own personal chronology. So basically, yes, he can't just like jump physically back in time, but he can move his consciousness into a younger self and make different decisions. Unfortunately, he is because of some complicated circumstances, he's only can only move within the same five years of his life on this new world. So he has been living the same story over and over and over again, and that's his only choice if he wants to live. And he's getting so tired of it that it's made him psychotic. And he also, by this point, he sees his life like a video game. You know, if he kills somebody, it's like, oh, they'll just show up again, you know, when the whole story reboots. Mm -hmm. And so it's like nothing he does is ever permanent. So he he wouldn't think twice about killing somebody for any reason. And does. And does, yes. Uh See, the only thing that gives him pleasure these days are torturing people, his fellow Silvers, who he fell out with in a previous timeline. None of the other Silvers remember this, but he remembers them. He has a bone to pick with nearly all of them. They have no idea why. What I do, what I do. (laughs) He knows everything about them. They know nothing about him, which puts him even more at a disadvantage. And yes, he is definitely a nasty piece of work. He was a little bit broken before all this happened anyway, but with the circumstances, he is definitely just – Completely, completely crazy. But uh, there'll be some interesting uh, twists with him in the third book. Which brings to question why he was chosen to be ported over to the next because he had Earth in the first place. He had Temporis powers where you know there weren't that many. Weren't that many of them, so I guess they rolled the dice on him. Yeah, they, they ordinarily the Peltiers would have realized that he is unproductive and he makes their jobs harder, so they would just wipe him off the face of the planet. But he has a very unique his, – his ability is unique. There's only one other person on the world who shares it, and she passed away in Song of the Orphans. So there is uh, – oops, I just gave away a spoiler. But <laughs> he, he's rare, and he has a rare perspective that even the Peltiers don't have. So they're, they actually can – time to time, they will use his knowledge and ask him questions, and actually that alone makes him worth keeping alive. Wow. And the other one's so, a, a child uh, uh, and go, has to go through puberty every, every she's been, iteration. Yes, there's a child so. who has the same power, a 10-year-old girl, but she doesn't act 10 because she has been through so much already. In her mind, she's already lived at least 20, 30 years. So she's like the world's most precocious child. Also, like Evan, not very stable. Mm-hmm. Well, nobody, nobody going through puberty is stable. It's like being, you know, 24 hours a day of PMS. I'd be cranky too. Yeah, I I, uh, I, I almost didn't survive it just the one time, so I would never <laughs> want to do it again. <laughs> yeah. But she, yeah, so there are a lot of, uh, there are at least 12 or 15 different temporal abilities in this novel, and I wanted to make sure that with each character that has it, I get into not just like the advantages of having this, but the disadvantages and the psychological costs of doing these things that they can do. They're, they're, and um, they, they meet up with more people who have these abilities. Yes, there is a whole society, a secret society on this alternate world who are natives to this world who they're basically are fourth generation time benders, chronokinetics, uh, because of this big event that changed history. So they are – they can do what the machines of the world can do, but with their minds. And there are at least 1,100 of them. As you know from Song of the Orphans, they're a huge part of the story. I loved writing them. I just had an absolute blast just writing my own little society from scratch. 
you really get to explore what the uh, effects are of these powers on on people who have to live with them all day. Right, exactly. And of course, you know, they're all filthy rich because they have at least like 60, 70 really talented precognitives who, mm-hmm. as it stands out, also make really good uh, business investors. So Funny thing about that. Too bad they wiped out Wall Street. Yes. <laughs> but, well, it came, you assume that when they re- rebuilt New York that, you know, the stock market came back and mm, uh, everybody invested again. So when the Temporal Revolution in the 1950s happened, when all this new time-bending technology came into existence, it was like an economic golden age all around the world. It was like the internet boom times a thousand. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of people got rich during that era and they invested smartly, which is why, you know, every single person in that clan is essentially a billionaire. Wow. You know, that talk, talk about about a society, a disrupting event, just on so many levels, uh, the, the, the complete destruction of a major chunk of, uh, uh, the center of civilization really, Right, exactly. Uh, New York. And you're like you 1912 know, when people to, aren't as, I mean, you saw how crazy we all got after 9-11 and right. that was in the 21st century. Imagine a event a million times larger back in that age, how just the insane, the, not just ripples, but tidal waves it would have in society. How would you, you know, some people would find religion, some people would just get like lose their religion, other people would blame immigrants because that's just what some people do. In any situation. Oh, of course. And it would just, the wars would, certain wars would be prevented, like World War One. other wars would start as a result. So, you know, there's just, it is a complete history redefining event. And one of the things I look forward to in book three is explaining why this cataclysm happened. It's a big part of the plot. Wow. I, one of the things I've, I've been noticing as I read, and I confess that I have not had time to read very much, but uh, uh, is that you said that it takes you a little while to get these books done. And this book is, <laughs> what is it, yeah. 600 and 685 pages? This is not... So the is about 750 pages, yeah. and it took me about close to four years. And yeah, it's about twice the size of the first book, I think, is it? No, the first one is about 620 pages. They, so they pay it, you by the word? <laughs> <laughs> but these, but but no word is wasted. They, you know, it's sure going somewhere. Yeah, still brevity is not my friend, as I tell people. But uh, you know, I I went where the story took me, and it turns mm-hmm. out you know it took me everywhere. So <laughs> well, and uh, some some tell. of that is a pacing choice as well. You know, it's yes. how much how much uh, detail you want to, uh, how much time you want to spend at a certain level of resolution in the story. Right, and exactly. and uh, you chose to really kind of stay low to the ground most of the time. I wanted to, yes, I wanted to include as much detail as possible without necessarily like bringing the story to a standstill. I still made sure that every scene had something that moved plot forward, and that every detail in some way was relevant to what was going on. So I didn't want to get too, and believe me, the first draft of both the books had at least, uh, God knows, 20,000, 30,000 words of stuff that uh, my editor helped me cut. God, Im- but, imagine how much, yeah, imagine what happened in those, right? Yeah, it was, there There was some stuff on hindsight that uh, deserved to be on the cutting room floor. <laughs> 
So, so the, the locations, the locations interest me for some reason. They, they, this group started in, in San Diego area and, right. and one character who, who was just there temporarily on a trip said, you know, if not for, you know, this trip, you'd have been one of the golds. Well, the golds figure in it. Right. So New York, yes. San Diego, New York, and Canada, I guess, because the Peltiers come from there. Do you have you lived in any of those or all of those places? I have not lived in San Diego, but I lived in L.A. for 19 years. Mm-hmm. So I know that I just I didn't want to set it in L.A. I just wanted it, it seems cliche at that point, so I, I chose San Diego. But yes, there are nine other groups in nine other cities around the world who also got bracelets of a different color and were brought to this world. So you'll meet survivors from uh, Seattle, Tampa, Austin, Calgary, London. Uh, I, I really every, – every group has like a different theme and a different approach and a different uh, dynamic to them. And by the time the series is over, you will – You'll know who they all are. They won't be major characters like the Silvers, but you'll have a sense of who they are and what their role is in this world. And, so, and the, the way they recognize each other or find each other, I find fascinating. Like the one guy. Oh my God! There's so. Oh, sorry. Continue. The one guy playing Pink Floyd in the in a bar <laughs> where there was never a Pink Floyd. <laughs> Right. Well, he only did it uh, because he wanted. He was just became a part of this new band, and they asked him if he knew any good songs. And it turns out he had a whole world of good songs, and no copyright lawyers to sue him. That's true. So he's like, "Sure, yeah, here's a Pink Floyd song I can teach you." And uh, so it wasn't an intentional dog whistle to signal people from his world. It's just something that kind of happened. But some of the characters, like Zach, use pop culture constantly as dog whistles. Yeah. Yeah. And as you know from Song of the Orphans, they use a whole Beatles song to attract only to send out a coded message to the people from their world. So it's uh, when you have an entire whole nother earth of culture to refer to, it's almost like a secret language at some point. Oh, my God. Now I want to be a, a recording company, start a recording company. What an advantage oh. that would be! You got all the Beatles in your hand. Oh yeah, you could do that. I, I learned to I learned to play and sing by studying their music. I would have written the Harry Potter books from scratch and made a million. Oh Billions. God, yes! <laughs> and even if you've gotten it wrong, you know who, right. who, who would know? Yeah. With my luck, though, one of the other survivors would have been a copyright lawyer, and he would have taken <laughs> it. Apart, yeah. So. Fine. Yeah. Produce uh, Ms. Rowling, and we'll t- discuss it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but. There's a lot of room for that, and of course, I have a lot of fun with that too. Where you know some of the characters will just drop pop culture references because it's part of their language, and the people from the alternate world are like, "What the hell are you talking about?" <laughs> Even simple things you might take for granted. I mean, because uh, this is a world where everything changed after 1912, so there might be an expression that like became popular in the 1940s that wouldn't have become popular in this world. Oh, so, tons, tons of yeah. But everything before that, like if you talk about Oscar Wilde, they'll know what you're talking about because everything before 1912 is exactly the same. It's just that one moment on October 5th, 1912, that things just split. And then they split right away and they split radically. The bracelets that uh, that the silvers wear and the golds, um, is there anything compelling them to wear those bracelets? I mean, once they made the jump from the other world, from the right. previous Earth – is there any uh, – do the bracelets protect them nope. from anything else? They, so they just hang on to them. 
Yeah, because they're busted they out don't. of them. The Silvers in the very beginning, one of the characters, Zack, figures out early on in book one how to get them off. So um, they haven't been they haven't worn the bracelets for the Silvers. The main characters, at least, haven't worn the bracelets pretty much since their second, third week on the New World. But some of the other characters, like the Golds, didn't have Zack's power. So they were stuck with their bracelets. But nobody wanted to keep them on. I see. Uh, so, but, so once they, the, I'm sorry. Yeah. So once they arrive in the second Earth, they're they're basically just used as markers, more than anything, and not they have no uh, particular ability or, or exactly. uh, they they prefer no particular advantage in wearing exactly. them, apart from the fact that you can't get them off. Right. Um, although there'll be something coming in book three about the bracelets that'll be hugely pivotal to the plot. So mm. I haven't forgotten about them. There's definitely a, a story reason for them to have them. Okay. More than one. I don't know what. See, I, I have I have so many questions, but I don't want to. <laughs> yes. Spoilers. Ugh. It is difficult. It is definitely, and it's also hard to talk about this to people who haven't read the book because you know once you get into the nitty gritty, they're like, uh, "What? Yeah, who? What? Where?" But uh, yeah, it is. It is tricky. It is definitely tricky too. There is a twist. Uh, in book two that I will not spill, and Susan, you know what it is, about a certain character who is uh, not necessarily what he claims to be. <laughs> That's and a big one. I, I kept that a secret from everyone, including my mother. Ooh. Uh, I, I sat on that one for five years you're gonna without have, telling a soul. You're going to have a lot of sad, sad little fans saying, I love you. Yeah, I've been planning a twist. I've been planning that twist since before I even wrote the first word of book one. So it has been, uh, as much as some readers will hate me, I want people to be able to go back to the very beginning of the book and have it read like an, like an almost like entirely different experience, almost like reading it under a black light. You see all the hints, all the clues and everything else. It's right it's, in front of you the whole time. Yes, I, I love, me personally, I love stories like that. I, they just, uh, it's almost like getting two stories for the price of one because once you go back and see it again, it's just like, oh, these are the things I missed. What right. do you mean Jack's a girl, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I love twists like that. So, um, but yeah, it's tricky. I, I keep these things close to the vest and there are only my fiance knows like the full, how the whole story ends. So this, so. this has uh, taken up a pretty major chunk of your life so far. Uh, yeah, to put it mildly, I mean, I've been uh, developing the story in my head since like my, my early twenties. Mm. Uh, it's so just last week, right? Yeah, <laughs> I wish, but uh, I didn't. I didn't have the nerve to write it because this is like early, early, early in my book career, and just the whole thought of writing like a story about. Superpowered people on an alternate Earth, just like oh god, no, that's no one's going to take this seriously. So I let it fester, and I ended up my debut novel was completely different. It's not even sci-fi; it was a whole book about um, public relations and media manipulation. And I had a blast writing it, but there was a part of me that still really just wanted to tell the story. It kept getting bigger and bigger in my head. And it wasn't until I was 35 and I came down with a small case of cancer. I'm totally better. I'm 11 years cancer-free now. But it was very, very bad at the time. Um, just scary. 
And that was the kick in the ass I needed just to say, you know what? Just shut up and do it. Just write it. So there's no pro there's, there's no downside to it. What's the worst that can happen? No one will read it. Exactly. Um, and I just couldn't stop thinking about it and I would never, I just had to get it out of my head. So I wrote it and it has been such a, an amazing experience. Not just the fact because I met my fiance through Flight of the Silvers, which was. <laughs> oh, now there's a love <laughs> story. A love nice story. little bonus. Tell us the I love de- story. I will definitely get to that, but, uh, this it just, I met so many wonderful people through this and I got all, so many of the reactions I wanted to get from people just saying, tell me more, tell me more. I want to know more about this. And I was so crazy lucky too that my agent managed to sell the first book like within the first round of submissions and that I got a two book deal from Penguin out of it. That, that never happened. It didn't happen in my first book at all. I got like, I could have papered my wall with all the rejection slips I got about that one. Yeah, but that but, book gave you practice, you know? Oh, you, may, absolutely. you may sell your practice, but it's, it was still practice. Oh, no, I still have a special place in my heart for my first book. Uh, but this is – I've been very, very lucky that I've been able to tell – because I couldn't have self-published these books. I wouldn't have had the money to write right. these things on my own. And I'm terrible at self-publishing anyway because I'm just not a good marketer. It's I, uh, I need somebody else to do that for me. I just don't have the mind for it. So I just, you know, it's like just let me write and you take care of the rest and we'll be fine. And it's uh, it's worth it to pay them a big chunk of whatever they can squeeze yeah. out of the system uh, just to have them do it. Oh yeah, I, I definitely hear you there. Yeah, and I've been also been very blessed that uh, the people I've worked with at Penguin Blue Rider Press have been fantastic. I mean, just really, really good. All the changes, I I didn't always see eye to eye with them during the editing process, but every single change they suggested was in service of improving the story. There was nothing about marketing, nothing about tone is down to play well with this base or that base. It was all about the story. And, uh, you know, they were just really... All the people who work at these places are passionate book lovers, and it showed, you know, when I work with them. Oh, so, that, and my, my editor on Song of the Orphans too, Nina Shield, is just one of the best, one of the best I've ever worked with. She was just fantastic, and she's the reason why the book is nine hundred pages. So, you all owe her a debt of thanks. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, nine hundred pages. Uh, at, at, and at, this children is why I read stuff on on a. Um, yeah, on Kindle, okay? Because I don't think my wrist could handle it anymore. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I, I couldn't either. My God, that is uh, uh, the length of the books is uh, is kind of surprising from a marketing standpoint for I mean, for, uh, for a newish writer. Yeah, yeah. for a newish writer. Uh, when you're <laughs> long long books are a hard hard sell. Well, did you? Oh. you know, I mean, look at the shelf and look at the Harry Potter books that start kind of normal and just get bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> because yeah. nobody's got the cojones to to edit the five hundred pound gorilla at that point. Right. Yeah. yeah, I started right out the gate with big fat books, and it has definitely been a hurdle. In terms of marketing, uh, because it's harder to get reviews mm-hmm. for such a huge book, and it's I people don't want to take a chance on like a six hundred page book for somebody they didn't they never heard of because what if it's six hundred pages of pure unadulterated pain? I mean, it's 
Yeah. I can totally, yeah, I can absolutely understand the hesitation. Um, and in hindsight, there are things that I could have cut more in Flight of the Silvers, but it still needed to be. It couldn't have been a 300-page book. I no. think it would have suffered for that. No, but it might no, have been I, I two, two 300-page books, you know? Right. Maybe. Maybe it could have worked. I don't think the ending would have been – the first book would have been as satisfying to me personally, but who knows? Um, but you're absolutely right about J.K. Rowling. I think it would have been harder for her if right out of the gate she was telling these 800-page books instead of – I know the first three books were only like maybe 200, 300 pages each mm-hmm. yeah. until they started doubling in size but and on the other hand, more complex. On the other hand, The Deathly Hallows really needed the hand of an editor for pacing issues. I totally agree. Oh, I my mean, God. I, I, just, I wanted to slip my wrists at around, you know, chapter 14. It is, yes. I, I love J.K. Rowling. I mean, I was, it's one of the few young adult style books that really, really, like, affected me in terms of, because she's so good at becoming invisible. Like, you never see the hand of the author when she writes, you know. It's like within two yeah, sentences, yeah. you're lost in the scene. You know, she's not a showboat, and and she just has a way of just, like, painting pictures with very few words. Um, and we wish and, she had in that last book because it just yes, <laughs> I totally understand as a writer what she goes through because when it's almost like you get a Stockholm syndrome with your characters, mm. where you become so fascinated by the things they say or do. I could have written another two hundred pages of the Silvers doing their tax returns, and I would have found it fascinating. <laughs> uh-huh. Other people not so much. To be like, yeah, okay, Dan, you need to dial it back a bit. But like, but it's interesting. It shows who they are because no, 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 no. Stop. Well, Theo, Theo would have left his tax returns for five years before any before he noticed. You know. Yes. Yeah. And he would have gotten yeah. Amanda to do them. You know. Exactly. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't really have the attention span for that. Or at least he would have seen that it wouldn't matter too much because being the precognitive that he is. But um, so it is definitely a trap, and it's something that <clears throat> Lord knows I fell into it more than once with the characters where I got interested by this. Um, I really I had a, a lot more scenes of their their co-relationships with each other that we had to cut for space because in hindsight they didn't move the story forward mm-hmm. as much as they could have. So everybody gets a an, at least one interesting relationship, love or otherwise. Yes. Oh yeah, in book two especially, um, they become part of a larger society, so they meet new people, new opportunities show up, and it really kind of uh, expands their horizons. And again, I didn't want to leave anyone behind. I wanted to make sure everybody, you know, got some kind of either a challenge or an opportunity or something that kind of reflects on who they are at that moment in time. Just love stories and begin and end and sometimes in tragic ways you've never thought of before. Oh, yes. Yes. Some of my characters really got put through their paces. Oh, poor Mia. Oh, oh. Yes. Uh, she's the youngest of the Silvers, 14 years old. And my guy, she, honestly, she's pretty much like the secret hero of the whole series. I mean, just um, so much happens to her. And she's going to be, after everything she's been through at the end of book two, she's going to be almost an entirely different character in book three. But so it'll be, it's, it's, it's been interesting so far. She'll either be Wonder Woman or Catatonic, and I'm not sure which, you know? (laughs) She is going to be angry. Okay. She will still have a king-sized chip on her shoulder, but uh, she won't retreat from the world. She'll be strong, but she will not necessarily be pleasant in her strength. (laughs) And she has good reason to be bitter, as you know from reading Song of the Orphans. Oh, 
Oh. <laughs> yeah, it is. I felt so horrible doing these things. I mean, you know, I spent years with these characters. I love them. So it always breaks my heart to just to do awful things to them. And, uh, you know, some of them, when it's time for them to go away, it's like, oh, God, I don't want to do this. But stories are driven by conflict and you can't uh, eventually, you know, these characters, some of these characters have to die or else it's like it becomes like the 18. Yeah. It's not yeah. just it's not just dying, and sometimes it isn't dying right. at all. Yeah, sometimes even worse. Yep, way it, worse. God, you know, I'm just glad that my parents just made me break up with boys they didn't like, not do anything. Well, worse. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Things get very romantically complicated at the end of the book for reasons completely out of control of the main characters. <sighs> I'm beginning <laughs> to really, really dislike those Peltiers. Yep, they are. They are definitely uh, is important. Also, they're most definitely the villains of the series. But it was important to me that they weren't just muhaha. You know, they weren't just trying to do evil for evil's sake. They have a goal, and they think they are basically what they believe that they are saving trillions of lives in their own timeline. And so they're driven. They think they're justified in doing all the things they're doing. And that almost makes them scarier to me. It's like, uh, you know, because nobody sees themselves as the villain of their own story. No, but by, Lou, by, by, by trying to save humanity, they've lost their humanity. Exactly. And um, they also fell into the same trap of Evan Rander, who keeps living the same life over and over again, that it just doesn't matter. They are in a past where, thanks to the nature of time, they can make as many changes as they want. They can kill an ancestor, and it's not going to make them disappear. They're I'm trying to figure out wh- how that works, but you're going to explain that, right? I will give it my best shot. In well, first of all, I mean the the reason the mental reason that I wanted to write a story without paradox was because I just got so tired of seeing it in stories. Okay. The whole, you know, we have to change the past to change the future, but be careful not to prevent this, not to prevent that. And I kept thinking, but what if time is more complex than that? If you go back and change the past, what if there's more than one string of time? So instead of suddenly changing your entire future, you simply create a parallel branch. So now both of these timelines exist in the same space, more or less, but so you're not necessarily – you have all your memories and there is a whole world where you have not changed a damn thing. But there's a whole world where your actions in the past did change things. So well, it's all, it's almost like Schrodinger's cat. You know, it's like the, yes and no in mm-hmm. a way. And uh, that makes it easy for like characters like the Peltiers to travel back in time. And they – because they're from like 2,600 years in the future. They could step on a butterfly uh, on this old world and prevent their own birth. But because of the nature of there are no paradoxes, only alternate strings, they can make all the changes they want. It doesn't affect their memory. It doesn't affect their existence. Well, then Um, they shouldn't be forbidding people from getting together and having children. Right. They they have a very specific plan as to what they want in a very particular way. I guess guess their their plan is foiled if these two – by a a person who is descended from these two people specifically or – Right. They, they're trying to create a very special kind of mutant. Uh, okay. And that involves some really fancy um, manipulations okay. on their part. They think differently. They see time differently than we do. They see all the strings of possibility at once, and they see far, far into the future. Like They, they plan 100 moves ahead. 
So that makes their plans in many ways a lot more convoluted than what you and I would do. The way Evan explained it is if they want the best sandwich in the world, they'll buy an umbrella. And we'll be staring at them wondering why the hell they did that, not realizing, as they do, that they're setting in motion a huge chain of events, a long chain of events that ends with them getting the greatest sandwich in the universe. So if you remember those old Rube Goldberg machines where the Mm -hmm. ball rolls down the the, the, the chute Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. lands on the lever, which lights the match, which breaks the string, it's basically like that. This is how they – they do things in convoluted ways because they know that this gets the exact specific outcome that they want. They're patient about the timing. They just want it to be just right. You know, I just, I just flashed on, you're going to laugh. Um, like this old, uh, space opera called the Lensman series. And there was, there were these, uh, near, um, omniscient and not quite omnipotent beings called the Eresians who had their visualization of the cosmic all. And they, they knew that many generations ahead who had to, who had to get on with whom, but had other ways of preventing it than being quite so mean. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, it is uh, – well, as far as the Peltiers are concerned, they're doing the humane thing. They are manipulating the characters instead of forcing them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, give, they're giving them free will. They're saying, okay, we're leading you to choose to do what we want you to do. You know, which is, I which could is just a lot give you my DNA. Argument. I mean, mix it up in a lab, will you? <laughs> that well, that's the big question. It's like, why don't you just, you know, if you want a mutant baby, why don't you just like engineer one? But and that's what they're doing with all the other groups. But the Silvers are different. The Silvers they want as natural a conception as possible, which creates issues. So uh, yeah, and, and even forcing them to breed has created like stress levels that made things difficult in terms of pregnancy. That, that they're prevented from doing that also. So this is the best way of doing it is to manipulate the characters into getting what they want. All villains have, I mean, the best villains have convoluted plans because if they didn't, every book would be 20 pages long. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. You look at Voldemort in the Goblet of Fire, you know, he mm-hmm. wanted to rig a Triwizard tournament so Harry Potter would win, so he would touch a trophy, which is actually a port key, which would teleport him into a graveyard where Voldemort could kill him. You think in a perfect world he would just like break the spell that protects Hogwarts and just mow Harry down with a machine gun. But <laughs> yeah. if you did that, however, you just you have no book. I mean, it would be over in 20 pages. So you have to, you know, it's having villains with complicated schemes serves the purpose of the story, but it's also the author's responsibility to explain it in a way that makes sense in terms of the story. So it is a very delicate line to walk. And I don't, I'm not sure I always succeeded in my series, but uh, I've been trying. Okay. Well, I'm, now I want to know more about the other groups and and why and what. And is anyone yep. going to find any long lost relatives? And besides the Silverbergs and the Goldfarbs, who have we got? You know, <laughs> there is um, there's there'll be much about that in book three. Like you'll get to meet a lot of these other groups, and there will be some. Uh, they won't all be entirely unknown to some of our main characters. Silverbergs and Goldfarbs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that would be interesting if they're all named after their colors. That would be a little bit too coincidental. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Robert Silverberg. Yes. <laughs> no, the, you were talking about uh, uh, the multiple threads, the multiple possible threads. Right. And uh, um, it, it's, it's interesting, but you, you pointed out the fact that 
previous time travel stories assumed that time is a single line, a single thread that, that right. goes well, from until- beginning to end, and it doesn't branch. And now uh, the modern um, modern quantum theory suggests that uh, uh, time and uh, reality um, are multi-threaded, and well, that there are a multi that that at every decision juncture, uh, every decision juncture spawns a new universe of did, did you not did you not read all the myriad ways by Larry Niven? I did not. Oh, I did not either. I Maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> In terms, of, is it just convoluted, or is it uh, a little bit too similar to what I wrote? It is similar in basis, but it go. It's a. It's a. Um, uh, well, actually, it's a, a. There's. The title is is the title of both a story and the anthology it's in, and, and the uh, multiple threads. The uh, thread through all of it, and time mm-hmm. travel threads through all of it, and how sometimes travel goes sideways. Right. Well, and then there's uh, David Gerald's "The Man Who Folded Himself." Uh, and all he, there is a, a but that's place primarily where, on on one. Well, timeline. yeah, but it's but it's uh, kind of uh, gets confused after a while. There's there's a meeting place where all of his past and future selves meet, uh, and uh, you think each the future of them ones had, would be pretty bored with yeah, it by now? And, and, <laughs> and but but each of them has had different experiences, you know, and it's not all the same. And so there's a, a wild variety, and some of his future selves are actually not male; they're female. Uh, so the the multiverse of potential from, is yeah, those is were from sidelines, weren't they? Right, yeah. they were. And uh, but my point being that attending the idea of time as a multiverse, um, uh, uh, an array of infinite possibility starting from a single point. Um, is is often not explored um, the the time travel paradox right you know assumes a, a singular linear um, cause causal relationship right and and that has been I mean there have been some fantastic stories about that mm-hmm. uh, make no mistake and I, and the the really good ones are classics that uh, I can read over and over again, but I just didn't want to go that way. I think I, I didn't personally see that there were many other avenues to explore with that conception of time. So I wanted to play around with more of the infinite possibilities. And um, especially if you have parallel universes in your story, then you're almost acknowledging that these multiple threads do exist. Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't the rest of time work that way? So it, it has been – in many ways, it has been freeing to be able to work under that, you know, that structure. Because then I don't have to worry about this. And, you know, I, I can mess with the past a little bit. Um, it's a hell of a bad deal for the poor schlubs stuck in that timeline, though. Yes, exactly. It is a raw deal. And, um, especially and here we go this, again. Exactly, yes. Um, and it's hard when you can change the past, but it turns out you don't change the concept. There's still, even if you do change the past, and then live in that new continuum, there's still a version of you that has to live with the consequences of what you did in that old string of time. So it's it's a very it's a it's a more complicated scheme that especially if you're somebody like the Peltiers, is one of the reasons why they don't go back and change time when things don't go their way, because they know it doesn't matter. That there's still a string of time where they screwed up. So 
the, all they can do is kind of move forward mm-hmm. and try to make the most of what's happening in this current string. Yeah, but whom are they saving at this point? Right. No matter well, what you do, it's going to be – something will work and something right. won't work. They see it in the future. They see not, they don't just see their goal. They see themselves achieving their goal. And the only thing that's unclear is the exact path as to how to get there. So that's what frustrates them. And even more frustrating is that they have to rely on these people who, by their standards, are primitives mm-hmm. to get them to do what they want them to do, especially the Silvers, the natural conception group, who they have, according to all their prognostications, have the most chance of giving them what they want. Mm-hmm. But they're the, hard, they're the hardest to deal with. So which is why they intervene in the Silver's lives much more than the other groups. Speaking of interesting timelines and causality, tell us tell us the love story. How did you Oh yes. The um it was almost two years two years ago this month that a um a woman who shares my last name, her name Nancy Price, uh emailed me or tweet she tweeted me to tell me that she loved the book and uh she, I think she inquired that if future Dan could send her a copy of books two and three, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> uh-uh. And I told her, I was like, well, if he could do that, then I would, I wouldn't have anything to worry about because he would just give me the books and I wouldn't have to spend years and go into deep debt writing them. Oh, temporal so, paradox. Yes. That would so never the work. only conclusion I could draw from that was that future Dan was a real jerk. <laughs> so... <laughs> Or, uh, or that, and, that that whole linear time thing and the temporal idea of temporal paradox is actually a problem. No, because he has someone has someone in some timeline has to write the books exactly in order for future Dan to be able to send them back. So you're the poor exactly. schlub in the timeline. Sorry, well, no, there's a future Dan who wrote these books and is thinking, well, if I had to write these books from scratch, why should I make it easier for another Dan? Screw him. Let him go the long way. But you That's will be you will be future Dan. Right, exactly. So this is why I haven't gotten any portals with completed books, even though it would be so much easier. So we joked about that. We started from, you know, between – I lived in L.A. at the time and she lived in Gilbert, Arizona. And mm-hmm. it just became uh, – we started chatting on Facebook. I mean this is just like the modern social media love story basically. I mean we just started like talking obsessively. Uh and by the time we finally met, I was just like, okay, I need to move out here to be with you. Because she had family here and, you know, she has kids and she couldn't very easily move to L.A. And I think I was looking for an excuse to get out of L.A. anyway. Mm-hmm. So it was 18 months ago I moved out to live with her in Arizona. And I have not had any regrets until today when it was 122 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a whole lot there. less here. Oh yeah, God. it was. It was about a it was hundred and eight when I left work today. Yeah. So you know, shrug. It, it was uh, scorching. Um, so, but beside that, though, it was the best move I ever made. And so, she. It started with her tweeting me about how much she liked it, and when is book two going to be ready? To me, moving into her house and finishing book two here. <laughs> well, that's one way of getting it early. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> no, she did it. That's the danger of treating your favorite authors. They might move in with you. Yeah. But <laughs> I don't have any more nicely. room. <laughs> well, it's great, actually. She had tons of room in her house. I have a whole um, office to myself, one of the best writing spaces I've ever had. It's just worked out beautifully, and she is just a fantastic person. She has held me together um, during the tougher parts 
And like, especially when around year three or year four of writing Song of the Orphans, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm never going to finish this. It's, well, I'm going to die writing this book, and I'm going to be writing it in hell. Yeah. She, <laughs> she gave me perspective, and uh, she really helped me get it done, uh, which is why book two is dedicated to her. Um, and now she's pretty much my only going to be my only alpha tester for book three, so which is like <laughs> a blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. The good news is she gets it eons before anyone else, but then she also gets it in its roughest form. So, right, yeah, which isn't always, uh, you know, I'm sure even Van Gogh, the people got to see the first drafts of his paintings, were just kind of like, uh, need some work. Well, yeah. you know, Van Gogh didn't get published in his lifetime, and you have, so that's true. This is true. So, but yes, yeah, so it has been, um, and I've also, you know, beyond Nancy, I've met so many fantastic people through this book all over the world. Uh, there were two German book bloggers who loved silver so much, they devoted an entire month to my book on their blogs. Wow. Wow. Just wonderful, wonderful people. I named two characters after them in Song of the Orphans as repayment. <laughs> nice. Uh, um, just, you know, some really enthusiastic readers. One of the best things in the world is when a hardcore reader loves your book and you know you've hit gold. You know, it's like you, you know you've done something right. Because, um, yeah, you know. well, when they write a filk song, you know, and they write a song about it. Of course, you've, you've managed to mess them up because there are no rhymes for silver. Yeah, it's not very, or Peltier, but, um. That's true. Probably, well, in Fran- French, there probably is. Oh, probably, yeah. Um, <laughs> but there actually is a woman in England who loved Flight of Silver so much, she's written some pop synth tunes inspired by my story. Yeah, I saw, is that Helen Wonders? Yes. Yeah, I linked to her from my homepage because, uh, and she's really, really good. Uh, she's written like a theme song for pretty much all of the main characters that I somehow managed to like capture their essence. Oh, we need to, uh, we need to check need to this go stuff out. Yeah. I mean, we are yeah. a radio station after all. Yeah, hello. <laughs> we can play it on the radio. In, we, yeah, we know the, somebody. The link, right, the link is right there on my homepage. She's so good. And it's, I mean, like there's no greater praise than to have somebody, you know, just inspired by what you do. That's, then there's, then there's really cosplay neat. and uh, yeah, we haven't seen that. We won't see that for a while. But well, uh, how do you dress as any of these people? Just a, you know, a silver bracelet. Uh, I, what does the bracelet look like? What is it? You know, is it yeah, a plain band? I, is it a? I imagine it's completely featureless. The Peltiers wouldn't be fancy about it. It would be like completely smooth, seamless, yeah. uh, and just look really utilitarian. So uh, how, they wouldn't care. Remark- remarkable in its lack of distinction. Exactly. So, exactly. so of course, I'm I'm quizzing you now because I'm going to do this. Um, how wide is it? How deep is it? You know, is it does it have I carpet? It, it would be fairly, relatively thick. Like it wouldn't just be like a tiny like chain bracelet. It would look more like a bangle, um, but a little square. You know, a little more even. And uh, you know, it would just imagine just like a real simple like a uh, wedding ring or something like that, but in bracelet size. And that's how it would look. Oh, really? That thin? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that basic, I would think. It'd be, you know, be proportionally thicker, but I think it would be that basic. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been speaking to Daniel Price, author of the Silvers series. Uh, the book we're discussing with him is uh, The Song of the Orphans. When does this book come out? July 4th. July 4th, two weeks from today. Two weeks from today. Wow. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's, have you got appearances lined up? 
I'm sorry? Have you got some appearances lined up? You going to As a matter of fact, yes, I will be at Comic-Con. Oh, uh, so will I. Yes. Oh. I'm excellent. on I'm on two uh, panels myself. Excellent. Yes, I apparently I'm not allowed to announce which panel I'm on yet because nothing the other panelists have not been confirmed. <laughs> but I, I'm, so I'm waiting to hear, but I'm very excited about it. And I will also be in San Diego two weeks earlier at Mysterious Galaxy. Oh, uh, oh, we uh, like Mysterious very nice. Galaxy. We love them. Oh, they, they are awesome. I love them. They, they are uh, lovely people. I, I went there. I had a sign. My very first book signing for Silver's was in their Redondo Beach location while it still was open. Yeah. And uh, it was it was a lot of fun. They're just really, really good people and so dedicated to the genre. You just got to love them. Um. So, and that, I have a bookstore appearance in Scottsdale, and I think that's more or less it, which is okay for me because I still need to clear my schedule. I'm still working on book three. <laughs> so the more time I have mm-hmm. for that, the quicker it can come out. And and how far along are you in writing book three? Are we uh, are we looking at another two years before we oh, see that one? Oh. I <laughs> I'm determined. I'm clo- uh, the bad news. I'm closer to the beginning than I am to the end. Uh-huh. But I am sort determined to write this book in half the time it took me to write Song of the Orphans. So I am really I'm trying to be more efficient and be a little bit less of a word perfectionist. And also now that I'm living here in Arizona, I have a much better like writing schedule. Mm-hmm. And so I can devote more time in my week to actually writing. So I think signs are good that there'll be less of a gap between books two and book three as there were between book one and book two. Marvelous. We have been so. speaking to Daniel Price, author of the Silvers series, Song of the Orphans. Comes out July 4th. It's from Blue Rider Press. And... um it's a phenomenal book. A very, very. It's not light, <laughs> but uh, but it's it's marvelous. It is. It's like um, and it just leaves you wanting more, which I guess is yes, your job, kind of isn't it? Point. Yeah, that, that's the reaction I want. Anyway, thank you very much for joining us on this week's episode of the Event Horizon here on Krypton Radio. We're very glad you could join us. I am very glad. This was fantastic. Thank you both for having me on. You have been listening to episode 172 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for June 24th, 2017. Our guest this evening has been Daniel Price, the author of The Song of the Orphans, due out from Blue Rider Press on July 4th, 2017. It's the long-awaited sequel to The Flight of the Silvers and is the second book of the Silvers trilogy. Your hosts have been Gene Turnbow and Susan Fox. This episode will air again at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow afternoon, that's Sunday, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts. Krypton Radio is listener-supported geek culture radio, and though some of our money does come from advertising, most of it comes from avid listeners just like you. If you enjoy listening to Krypton Radio, please help us out so that we can stay on the air. Visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio. That's patreon.com slash kryptonradio. And donate whatever you can. Even $5 a month makes an enormous difference because it all adds up. Single drops of water can add up to a tidal wave. And that can keep your favorite radio station and shows like this one on the air and thriving. And possibly very wet. Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by science fiction illustrator Mark Schurmeister. 
The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry, and the captain was voiced by science fiction grandmaster Larry Niven. This program is copyright 2017 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The event horizon on Krypton Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.